Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation 5. We are moving right along, uh, going through the book of Revelation, and in our series to the book of Revelation, we come this morning to Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, and my goal this morning is to cover uh, verses 1 through 14 of Uh, this remarkable chapter, and the title of the message is Worshiping the Worthy Lamb. Worshiping the Worthy Lamb. Most of you uh, are familiar with the story of Excalibur from the legend of King Arthur. According to the legend, there was a sword called Excalibur whose blade was buried inside an anvil of iron and a great stone, and around the handle of this sword, buried in the stone and the anvil, were the words, Whoso pulleth out this sword from this stone and anvil is rightwise born king of England. And as you can imagine, many valiant men tried to pull the sword from this stone, but None were able to do so. But one day, as the story goes, Arthur was on an errand to retrieve his brother's sword for him. And instead of going all the way home to get his brother's sword, Arthur saw the Excalibur sticking from the stone and decided to save some time and grab that sword for his brother to use. Not knowing the meaning of this sword... He approached the stone and he easily pulled the sword from the stone and then took it to his brother. When he handed the sword to his brother, his brother recognized immediately the sword and knew right away what had happened. Arthur was quickly instructed to put the sword back into the stone and he did. In the days that followed, opportunities were given for other knights and lords of the land to draw out the sword from the stone, but no one was able to do so. But every time Arthur tried to pull the sword from the stone, he could do so with ease. He did so on Christmas Day. He did so again on Easter And then came the great feast of Pentecost when all the lords and the commoners of the land were gathered. And at that great feast, many valiant men tried once again to retrieve the sword from the stone and they failed. But in front of the whole assembly that was gathered at that great occasion, Arthur stepped forward and pulled out the sword from the stone. At which point everyone kneeled at once and they proclaimed him their king. And thus began the noble reign of over all of creation. And then in chapter 6 and beyond, Jesus will begin to break the seals of this 
scroll and execute his judgment upon the earth until the kingdoms of this world become his. And thereafter, Jesus will come from heaven in great glory and establish his kingdom upon the earth. And today, all we're going to do is look at the beginning of this in Revelation chapter 5, where John is witness to Jesus taking the scroll from the hand of God, bringing about the largest scene of worship found anywhere in the Bible. You'll recall from Revelation 4 that John had seen a door standing open in heaven. Jesus speaks to John with the voice of a trumpet and says, Come up here and I will show you the things that must take place after these things. The next thing John knows, he's in heaven beholding the very throne of God. And around the throne of God, John sees in chapter 4, 24 thrones and 24 elders seated on those thrones. And immediately around the throne of God, John observes four amazing living creatures who are proclaiming the holiness of God and calling him the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. The 24 elders also praise God saying, worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. John then watches at the end of chapter 4 as these elders fall down. They fall from their thrones and cast their crowns at God's feet as they worship Him. And this is where we left off. A couple Sunday mornings ago when we were last in Revelation. And as wonderful as what we saw in chapter 4 was, it gets even more amazing in Revelation chapter 5, which is where we pick up today. The way we're going to frame our study this morning is we're going to observe six developments, six developments in John's account of the moment when Christ is revealed as worthy to take the book or the scroll from God's hand. Six developments in John's account of the moment when Christ is revealed as the one worthy to take the book or the scroll from God's right hand. And the first development that we see in the chapter is number one, For encountering the other seals. As for what this book contains, keep in mind that Jesus has invited John to come up here 
and to see the things that must take place after the present age. So John is looking at this book in the right hand of God, and he knows intuitively that this book contains the things that must take place. In other words, this is the book of history's culmination. This is the book containing the judgments that will be poured out upon the earth in the coming chapters, giving way to the coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom on earth. For our purposes as readers of the book of Revelation, we would say that contained in this book, in this scroll, is the prehistory of what will be unfolding from Revelation 6 all the way to and through chapter 22. John describes the next thing that he sees in verse 2. He says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? John describes this as a strong angel. And befitting to his strength, this angel proclaims his question, with a mega voice, obviously to ensure that his proclamation reaches the remotest extremities of the physical and material universe. Essentially, this angel is sending out a call throughout the entire universe, asking who is worthy to open this book, which will set in motion the things that must take place which will bring in the culmination of God's great kingdom. Observe what John says in verse 3. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Implied in this verse is the fact that there was enough of a delay for it to become evident that no one was able to open the book and to set the contents of this book in motion. In fact, John says no one was able to even look into the book. In other words, no one was authorized or worthy to break the seals to look inside. John says that there was no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth who was able to do this. The angel Gabriel was not worthy to do this. Michael The archangel was not worthy. No other angel, not even this strong angel making this announcement, was considered worthy to open this scroll. None of the four living creatures, as awesome as they were, were worthy to open this scroll in the hand of God. Neither was any of these 24 elders seated around the throne of God worthy to open this scroll. No person from Old Testament history was worthy to open this scroll. Not Moses, not Abraham, not David, nor Elijah was worthy to open this scroll. Neither was any character from the New Testament. Not the Apostle John, or Paul, or Peter. Nor was anyone from history worthy to open this scroll. Not Buddha, or Confucius, or Mohammed, or Donald Trump, or Joe Biden, worthy to open this scroll. 
John says that there was no human being nor angelic creature who was found worthy to open this book or to break the seals so as to look into it. Now, for God to be holding this book in his outstretched hand would show us that he's ready for the contents of this book to be set in motion. He wants someone to take this book. And yet, no one is found who's worthy to open this book and to set the events recorded in the book in motion. The fact that God himself does not presume to open this book himself reveals, I think, that something else is in play here. Certainly, God himself is worthy of opening this book, right? After all, he's the one who wrote this book. But it's evident that in the mind of God, whoever opens this book that holds the destiny of humankind must himself be human, a worthy human, a human whose worth surpasses that of the greatest saints in history. Observe how John responds to this delay where no one is found able to open this book that's in the outstretched hand of God. He says in verse 4, Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. John is not sad because his idle curiosity regarding the future is not going to get satisfied if no one opens the book. He's sad because the things that Jesus told him must take place aren't going to take place after all, maybe. And if these things don't take place, then human history is going to be stuck in limbo. And God's promises regarding the consummation of history and the establishment of Christ's reign upon the earth will not happen. If this scroll cannot be opened, then it means that its contents will remain unfulfilled, thus thwarting the purposes of God. And so John weeps, and he doesn't just weep, but he says, I I wept greatly because John thinks that no one is going to be found who is worthy to open this book. Now, fortunately, the story does not end here. There is someone who is worthy to open this book, and John is about to discover who this one is. And this brings us to the second development In John's account of the moment when Christ is revealed as worthy to take the book from God's right hand. Development number two. An elder assures John that the Lion of Judah has overcome to open the book. An elder assures John that the Lion of Judah has overcome to open the book. Observe what happens in verse 5. John says, and one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. We all know that in the New Testament, an elder is someone who shepherds people in doctrine and in practice. And that's exactly what this elder is doing for John here. First of all, this elder tells John to stop his weeping. John 
evidently is missing the point of this interlude, which is simply to set the stage for the grand entrance of Jesus Christ. The elder knows this, but John evidently does not in this moment. So the elder says to John, Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Guys, this is Christ-centered counseling that this elder is ministering to John in this moment to bring a halt to his weeping. And think about this. This is the Apostle John, who is aged at this point. He is spiritually mature at this point. He's even in the Spirit, according to chapter 4 at this point. And he is in heaven witnessing amazingly glorious things. And yet he needs gospel-centered counseling. Even with all that. Just as we often do here on earth. How often do we need someone to speak to us in our pain and in our tears and our despair and our moments of frustration and anger and point us to Jesus? John needed that in this moment, and this elder is faithful to provide that for him. As this elder speaks to John, please notice how he describes Jesus. He speaks of him as the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. This is a clear reference back to Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 and 10, where Jacob on his deathbed is speaking of Judah three times as a lion. And he says, and as a lion who dares to rouse him up. And then Jacob says in Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, or the giver of rest comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Jacob is prophesying on his deathbed of a coming lion-like ruler from the tribe of Judah who will bring rest and to this ruler will belong the obedience of all the peoples of all the world. And this elder here in Revelation 5 is right now telling John that this lion of Judah has overcome to open this book in the hand of God. This elder also describes Jesus as the root of David, or we can translate it the offspring of David. This is a clear reference back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and verse 10, where the prophet says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, who was David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And then verse 10 of Isaiah 11, Then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Well, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, and he's from the lineage of David, meaning that he is a human being and of the right lineage to be the promised Messiah and the one 
who can open this book. The elder is talking to John and tells him that this lion of Judah and offspring of David has overcome. He's overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. You might want to mark that word overcome. The language of overcoming here that this elder uses means that a battle was required to open this book and break its seals and that Jesus has overcome. Literally, he's been victorious. He's triumphed is what this word means. And because of his triumph, he's able to open the book and its seven seals. And the coming verses are going to make absolutely clear that this elder is talking about the battle that Jesus won at the cross when Jesus died and shed his blood and then was resurrected on the third day after his death. And in accomplishing that victory, Jesus not only provided atonement for all who would believe in him, but he also vindicated his right to be the one to take this book in the hand of God that represents the culmination of God's kingdom. You see, the elder who's one of the 24 elders around the throne of God, he knows this. He knows how all of this is going to get resolved. So he knows that this is not a time to be weeping greatly. But this is a time for excited and joyful anticipation. So he says to John, stop your weeping. And then he speaks truth to John about Jesus, telling him that the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, has overcome so as to be able to open this book that is right now in the right hand of God. Reading these words from this elder, we are set up, and John, in hearing these words, would be set up to expect next a royal-looking lion to appear on the scene. But this is actually not what happens And this brings us to the third development in John's account of the moment when Christ is revealed as worthy to take the book from God's right hand. Number three, John sees a lamb. John sees a lamb come and take the book from God's hand. John sees a lamb come and take the book from God's hand. Observe what happens in verses Or in verse 6, John says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now there's no way we can draw up the image of what is being described here without it appearing to us to be some kind of monstrosity. I've actually seen artist renderings of this, uh, and it is a monstrosity. But this is what John saw in this moment that features dimensions of reality that we can't comprehend or even try to display on a canvas. Note John's description of Jesus. He tells us that he saw a lamb Standing as if slain. To John's sight, this one looks like a lamb 
only this lamb is standing on two feet and he's standing as if slain. How can someone be standing as if slain? John clearly perceives that this lamb has been killed and he bears the marks of his slaughter, yet he is obviously alive and standing on the other side of his dying, which bespeaks resurrection. And notice that John refers to him as a lamb. You'll be interested to know that, in fact, if you took the New Testament and you removed Revelation from the book of, from the New Testament, there are four times in all of the New Testament outside of Revelation, four times when Jesus is referred to as a lamb. There are 28 references to Jesus as a lamb in the book of Revelation alone. In fact, this is the primary way that Jesus is depicted in this book. And from a narrative, literary standpoint, it's actually a stunning twist of plot that right after this elder tells John that a lion is worthy to open this book, that John looks and he does not see a lion, but instead he sees a lamb. This doesn't mean that the elder was wrong, but it simply means that this lion of Judah is also a lamb. He's a lion lamb, a lion-like lamb. And from this point forward, Jesus will be depicted in Revelation as the lamb with hugely lion-like qualities, a lamb to be feared but also a lamb to be adored. In fact, even from verse 6, we see that this is no ordinary lamb that John is looking at. John describes him in verse 6 as having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Throughout Scripture, horns always serve as a symbol of strength and of power, even political power. For Jesus to have seven horns, of these horns indicates that he has perfect and complete power. John also sees that he has seven eyes, which speaks of perfect knowledge gained from eyes that see everything with perfect eyesight. Eyes that miss nothing. John says that these eyes are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. In other words... These eyes are the sevenfold spirit of God who has been sent out into all the earth. The spirit of God serves many roles throughout the New Testament. One of them is to serve as the means by which Jesus sees all that happens in the world, both externally and even in the hearts and thoughts of men and women the world over. This lion-like lamb with perfect and complete power and perfect and complete knowledge and eyesight is the one that John sees. And upon seeing him, John continues and says in verse 7, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Jesus ventures to reach out and take this book from God's hand, and God allows him to take it 
meaning that God deems him worthy. As Arthur was able to lift the Excalibur from the stone, Jesus is able to take this book out of the right hand of God. And what an epic moment this is. We can only imagine the joy that this moment would elicit from the Apostle John and how he must love Jesus so much in this moment. Witnessing what he has just witnessed would take John from the depths of despair and weeping to the heights of joy. And John is going to discover in the coming verses that he's not the only one happy about what he's right now witnessing. This actually brings us to the fourth development in John's account of the moment when Christ is revealed as worthy to take the book from God's right hand. Number four, John witnesses the living beings and the elders worshiping the Lamb. John witnesses the living beings, those four living beings around the throne, and the elders, the 24 elders around the throne, worshiping the Lamb. Listen to what John says in verse 8. He says, And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We all know what a harp is, right? The Greek word here is the word kithara, from which we get our English word guitar from. These were stringed instruments. And we learn here that they're being held by the 24 elders and possibly even the living creatures too. John also tells us that they are holding golden bowls full of incense. And then he tells us what that incense is. It's the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints that John is referring to here are the prayers that saints have prayed throughout history for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are prayers for God to execute his perfect justice against the wicked who have exploited the weak and persecuted the people of God. And these bowls full of incense representing these prayers are now being presented to God and to Jesus Christ at this moment before the events of Revelation 6 and following unfold. The saints who prayed these prayers may have felt when they were praying that they were nobodies on earth and that no one cared about their prayers. They may have even wondered, does God care about my prayers? Does he hear me? But we see here that their prayers have been saved in heaven in golden bowls, speaking of how precious they are, and are now being brought into the very presence of God and the Lamb because now is the time that these prayers will be answered in fullest measure. Guys, if you're praying these kinds of prayers now, be encouraged and know that your prayers today are contributing to the incense that's going to be presented to God at this point before the events of Revelation 6 and following happen. 
And one of the encouragements, I think, from a passage like this is also that when you pray to God, don't just pray for things like your ingrown toenail or your backache, even though you should pray for those things. But in addition to that, pray cosmic prayers. Pray for God's kingdom to come. Pray for God to take the kingdoms of this world and make them His own. Pray for God to judge all unrighteousness and to establish the reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth. Not only is it guaranteed that God will ultimately answer these prayers, but guys, praying such prayers on a daily basis will serve to keep before your eyes the larger story of history that is destined to unfold in God's plan. It is in this moment, through this incense, that the desperate cries of the saints of ages is meeting with God's perfect will. And those prayers are about to be answered. As for these living creatures and the 24 elders, John tells us that they fell down before the Lamb. We already saw these elders falling down from their thrones in Revelation 4. They evidently got back up and took their seats again on the throne because we see them falling down again before the Lamb to worship Him. In verse 9, John says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, speaking to the Lamb, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. John calls this a new song, meaning that this is a song that was made for this particular occasion. And in this song, they sing to the Lamb, And when they sing to him, they don't just celebrate that he's taking the book from God's hand, but look at this closely, guys. They celebrate the fact that he's worthy to take the book and to break its seals. They say, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. The lamb here is not some interloper who is opening this book unjustly. He is the perfectly worthy one who should be the one who opens this book. And these elders and 24 creatures are singing this song, praising him as such. And then notice why they know that this lamb is worthy to do this. They say in verse 9, For or because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is gospel-centered worship with gospel-centered lyrics. They aren't celebrating the Lamb as a great teacher or a great leader, even though He is both of those things. They're celebrating Him as a great Redeemer the one who allowed himself to be slain at the cross so that through his death he might purchase with his shed blood men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And he didn't just purchase them for himself, but as they say here, he purchased them at great sacrifice to himself for God. That's how much he loves 
God the Father. The word tribe speaks of people of every physical descent based on their lineage. The word tongue classifies people on the... The word people speaks of people based on their ethnicity and culture. And the word nation speaks of people on the basis of the government that they are under. And notice the word every that governs them all. Meaning that there is no tribe, no tongue, no people, no nation excluded from this statement and from this purchase of Christ through his shed blood at the cross. Not every person of every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be saved, but what we learn here is that there are people from among every tribe and tongue and people and nation who have been purchased by Jesus. And in this song that they are singing, these elders and the 24 living creatures are celebrating how Jesus has purchased all such people for God. And these living creatures and elders don't just celebrate Jesus for dying and purchasing this people for God, but also for what he does with the people upon purchasing them. In verse 10, they say to Jesus, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. Jesus didn't just purchase for himself a people and then put them into sweatshops to work for him under slave labor conditions. He didn't just purchase a people for himself so that they can be galley slaves for him. He purchased them. And then he made them to be a kingdom, which means he made them full citizens in his kingdom with full rights and privileges of citizenship in his kingdom. And he made them to be priests to our God, priests who have access to his father and to the presence of God to commune with him and to worship him anytime they please. And he made them to be royal priests who will reign as kings upon the earth. In other words, he has made those whom he has purchased to be power players in his kingdom with glorious titles and roles. This is the goodness of Jesus that serves to explain why he is so worthy to be the one who opens this book and sets in motion the events that are to come because he has been so good to those whom he has purchased and lifted them so high. Laying down his life for them, shedding his blood for them, to buy them, and then having bought them to elevate them in this way. And so they're expressing this in worship to Jesus. And as wonderful as it must have been to witness these living beings and elders around the throne of God and singing this new song to the Lamb, John's heart, which already had to have been full, must have been stunned beyond all measure by what happens next as the circle of worship widens out from the throne. This brings us to the fifth development 
in John's account of the moment when Christ is revealed as worthy to take the book from God's right hand. Number five, John hears the voice of many angels worshiping the Lamb. John hears the voice of many angels worshiping the Lamb. Listen to what he says in verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them, speaking of the angels, was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. We already know there were four living creatures. And then beyond that, 24 elders that are involved in this scene of worship. But now we learn that there are many angels, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands who are joining in this worship of the Lamb. The largest number in the Greek language of this day was the word myriad. That was as high as their numbers went. And the word myriad meant 10,000. 10,000. So in saying myriads of myriads, John is saying 10,000s of 10,000s. 10,000, singular, 10,000s is 100 million. So 10,000s, plural, of 10,000s, plural, is hundreds of millions. But even that does not feel sufficient for what John is seeing with his eyes. So he adds the words, and thousands of thousands, meaning thousands of thousands of myriads beyond that. And according to verse 12, this great company of angelic beings together with the living creatures and the 24 elders are saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What do I do as a pastor with these seven words here? Power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Do I break down this text and analyze the meaning of each of these seven words? I don't think so. Gordon Fee, the commentator, I believe is right when he says, and I quote, these are the kinds of moments that should give any interpreter reason for pause since these words hardly need commentary, but rather affirmation and acclamation. In other words, the intent is not just for us to listen to these words with our mind, but to sing along and utter these words together with this great company. This is what John wants from us, to sing in our hearts with these angels as they proclaim, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And these are not just throwaway words. Guys, heaven is a place that is filled with hundreds of millions of angelic beings who have all seven of these things. 
They have power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And they want all of those things that they have to go to Jesus. They especially want these things to go to him because they watched him be slain on the cross. And what must that have been like for angels to have known Jesus from all of eternity past to watch him be mistreated and blasphemed and mocked and ridiculed and brutally beaten and crucified on a cross that he was nailed to. They watched that. They lived through that. They know that he was slain. They watched him give up his power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing in order to die for the salvation of sinners like you and me. And he was raised on the third day and here he is and he's taking the book from the hand of God and they now adore him so much that they are happily giving all of these things to him. Imagine the greatness, the gravitas of Jesus, guys, to provoke this kind of worship from beings such as these angelic beings. If just one of these angelic beings appeared right now in this place, we would all fall on our faces in fear and we would be tempted to worship that being. We've never seen anything so glorious. And yet this is thousands of thousands of hundreds of millions of these beings who from the heart are extolling Jesus and giving this worship to him. The circle of worship grows even wider than these angels, which brings us to the final development in John's account of the moment when Christ is revealed as worthy to take the book from God's hand Number six, John hears all creation praising the enthroned God and the Lamb. John hears all of creation praising the enthroned God and the Lamb. Listen to what John says in verse 13. He says, And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, meaning in the earth, And in the sea, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. When John says every created thing in all of these places, he's likely speaking of every animate being including the redeemed saints who are in heaven at this point because we are created beings and we will be in heaven so and we will have been raptured at this point so we will be among the company of those that are saying these words of worship to the enthroned God and to the Lamb. So you want to memorize these lyrics here because you're going to be singing them on this occasion We will be joining with all other created beings in heaven and on earth and singing the praises of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, on this occasion. And notice the four things. They want to go to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Blessing and honor and glory and dominion. And again, we could do a word study 
of each of these words, but the power of this praise does not lie in the separate meanings of each of these words, but in their collective intensity. All of creation here is looking at God the Father and God the Son and genuinely wanting all blessing to go to them, all honor to go to them, all glory to go to them, all dominion to go to them forever, and if that's not long enough, and ever, forever and ever. Perhaps all of creation is always singing this song even now, and praising God in a way that we can't hear. And perhaps only now are John's ears open to hear what they've been saying all along. Or perhaps God will enable all of creation to utter these words in this future moment before the time of tribulation begins. Either way, and there's a lot of mystery here, this is an epic moment for every created thing to utter these words. We're told in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation is groaning and anxiously longing for the moment when the sons of God are revealed in glory. Well, by Revelation 5, this moment will have come. And now that the Lamb is taking the book from the hand of God and is now ready to bring history to its fulfillment. All of creation is joining with the angels and the living creatures and the 24 elders and singing this song of worship to God the Father and to the Lamb. As this moment of worship comes to its finale, observe what John says in verse 14. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. These four living beings are giving hearty approval to every word that is being spoken in praise of God and the Lamb. They keep on saying amen, which means so be it. To these true words that are being spoken in worship. And may our hearts say amen to these words of worship as well. At the end of verse 14, we're told that the elders fell down yet again. We saw the elders fall down in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. We saw them fall down again in Revelation 5, 8. They must have gotten back up after that second fall to play their harps and sing because we're now told yet again that the elders fell down and they worshiped. One of the things you notice about these 24 elders in the book of Revelation is that they seem to have a lot of trouble staying upright. These are glorified beings, and yet they seem to keep getting wobbly and falling down. This is now the third time that we're told that they fall down, and we're going to still yet see three more occasions later when they're going to fall down again as the book of Revelation unfolds. This is them, glorified beings, responding to the greatness of the enthroned God and the greatness of Jesus Christ. Just in closing, there's so much we're left to ponder from this passage. 
And everything we're left to ponder, I think, has to do with Jesus Christ. For starters, think about it. If Christ is worthy to take this book of the kingdom, this book of human destiny, from the hand of God, if God, the Father, trusts him enough to put the culmination of history into his hands alone, then there is every reason for you to trust Jesus with your life as well. Why would you not trust someone whom the Father trusts this much? Why would you not trust someone whom all of creation pronounces so worthy of this honor? Someone who allowed himself to be slain at the cross to purchase for himself a people so that he could then elevate them and glorify them into kings and priests unto God. And, you know, we earlier in the sermon, we listed off a bunch of people and beings that were not worthy to open the book. I failed to mention one of them, and that is you. You aren't worthy to take this book from the right hand of God. And if you aren't worthy to take this book from the right hand of God, yet Jesus is, why would you ever trust yourself over Jesus? And yet we do that all the time. Another thought here is that if if God has given complete authority to Jesus to bring history to its culmination and to make the kingdoms of this world his own, then you can be sure that it is Jesus that you're going to have to reckon with. It is he who will determine your fate and to decide your eternal destiny. Contained in this book is the fate of every single person. You say, well, that's just not what I believe. I, I don't believe in Jesus. I believe in another deity. You can believe in whatever deity you want to believe in. It's Jesus you're going to stand before on judgment day. And it is Jesus that's going to make the decision about your eternal fate. Are you ready to reckon with Jesus and to stand before him? It's better to do business with Jesus now than to wait until that future day when you stand before him at the judgment. As the psalmist says in Psalm 2 verse 12, pay homage to the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Lastly, it's a helpful thing for us to see how adored Jesus is by these hundreds of millions of angelic beings. Later in Revelation, the Apostle John is going to see one angel, and he's going to fall at the feet of this angel to worship him, and the angel's going to have to rebuke him. That's how glorious these beings are. Imagine millions upon millions of such glorious beings worshiping Jesus with deepest affection and proclaiming his infinite worth. What does it do to your heart to see Jesus being praised by such a glorious throng in this chapter? That's your Savior that they're praising. That's the Savior who laid down his life for you that they are praising. 
That's the Savior who has made himself your companion and who promises, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age, and then beyond that. That's your Savior that they're praising. You know him, and, and he knows you. This one that these angels are praising so knows your name. And he's being praised here for what a good and glorious Savior he is to all, including you. And think about this heavenly scene from another standpoint also. In this passage, we get to see Jesus, as it were, at home. We get to see Jesus in his own home. And we get to see how loved and adored he is by the members of his household. And this tells us a lot. In his sermon on this passage, Charles Spurgeon said these words. Let me read them to you. If you want to know a man's character, it is good to inquire at his home. What do his children and servants think of him? What is the estimate formed by those who are always with him? And then Spurgeon says this, Beloved brethren in Christ, see what an estimate is formed of your Lord at home up there where they know him best and see him most constantly and in the clearest light. They have discovered no faults in him. The angels who have watched him ever since they were created, the redeemed who have been with him, some of them for thousands of years, have found no spot in him, but their unanimous verdict expressed freely in joyful song is you are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy. And as for us, the only proper response that we should have to this ever-widening scene of worship in this chapter is to join in and to say with Spurgeon, and I'll close with this, Jesus is worthy of my life, worthy of my love, worthy of everything I can say of him, worthy of a thousand times more than that, Worthy of all the music and harps on earth. Worthy of all the songs of all the sweetest singers. Worthy of all the poetry of the best writers. Worthy of all the adoration of every knee. And he is infinitely worthy of my adoration as well. Let's pray together. If you're here today and you have never put your trust in Christ and experienced salvation through Him, this is the time for you to allow this circle of worship to widen enough to include you. Will you say amen to these lyrics of praise to Jesus? Will you kneel before Him and will you join in the worship? Or will you disagree with all of heaven and say, nope? Not me. Respond and pay homage to the Son today. Lord, my heart bleeds as I go through this passage for those who do not know Jesus, for those who are not a part of 
this grand choir that worships you. They are suffering. They may not know that they are suffering, but they are suffering every moment that they live apart from you. And they probably won't realize the depth of their suffering until they believe in you. And then after believing in you and experience the forgiveness of their sins and being made right with you, Lord Jesus, they will look back, as I know I did, and say, how did I ever live an hour apart from him? I pray, Lord, that you would touch hearts this morning those who are gathered here in this parking lot and those who are watching via live stream, that you would touch the hearts of any that have not yet put their trust in Jesus and that they would not only trust him as their savior, but trust him as their greatest treasure and become worshipers of him. Help us as a congregation in the midst of our tears, in the midst of the frustrations, the difficulties, the despairs of life, that we would keep this vision of Jesus ever before us and know of your, your greatness. That won't take our present problems away, but it sure will put everything into perspective. And that's what we need, a Christ-centered perspective. You are good, Lord Jesus, you are glorious, and you are worthy to take the book and to open the book and to break the seals of the book, and you are worthy of our hearts, you are worthy of our minds, you are worthy of our whole being. And We lay ourselves before you today and say we surrender all that we are and all that we have to you. For you are worthy. And we say these things to you, Lord Jesus, in your name. And all God's people said, Amen.